So it's kind of a head-scratcher, isn't it? Many of us would probably be just like that little one saying, hmm, what would we bring? What's precious to us? How would we, how would we enter into the story? I think that's really what we come to do each year. We hear the same story again and again, right? We know uh, the players. We have heard it in different gospel uh, writers. We've heard the fullness of the story, and yet we want to enter into it again. We want to be a part of the story. We, we know that the story is, is much bigger and carries a, a greater message than just the simplicity of, of what we see. Could you put up that first slide? This is the image that we have in our minds. Yet if you go over to Israel uh, in you know, current time, but current time imagining what the time of Christ was like, you wouldn't see anything like this. This is, this is modern, probably, you know, uh, 19th century America's view of what the nativity looked like. But it was probably a cave. And uh, it, was, it probably had different places that were not what we picture. And they were going back to a town that, that was supposed to be a town where there was family there so they could be counted. <laughs> and yet there wasn't any room. Well, there wasn't any room in the bedroom. Because unlike our houses with multiple bedrooms, this probably had a singular space, right? Where everybody would pile in and sleep. And the animals would be on the first floor and the second floor would gather up the warmth from the animals as it rose within this small dwelling. Or even if the weather was nice, they'd sleep on the roof. So there was no room. There was no room for extra family. They ended up in a cave, in a, in a dwelling. Well, it makes me think, uh, it just brings me uh, to this understanding that we enter into a much larger story. Simon Wheel um, once wrote that there are two things that pierce the human heart, beauty and affliction. And the beauty of this night, the beauty of this story, the beauty of God's story is that we have both life and death, beauty and affliction, light darkness most of our lives we spend the question our lives asking questions like why where do I find happiness how do I have full dreams what are my future going to be like what my children's future going to be like and many of those things seem at times disappointing unpredictable the reality in our time, we're in a postmodern era, they say, right? The, the reality is that in this postmodernism, to answer the deepest questions of our hearts, the things that we long for, we ask the wrong question or get the wrong answers. We believe in church, right, that Christianity is supposed to have the answer to the riddle of earth. It was supposed to speak to our deepest human heart issues, right? in a way that would capture our hearts and draw us, draw, draw us up into something larger. But because Christianity did not ex escape the trends of our time, 
of postmodernism, we're left with not a gospel at all, with not an answer. We're left with techniques and tips, three steps for a good quiet time, four habits of effective communication in marriage and with friends. We are left to uh, figure out how to uh, walk this walk with, with uh, gimmicks, but it doesn't take our breath away the way that it first did. And if Christianity doesn't take our breath away, something else will. Some cheap form of grace will fill that void. A little boy who is probably 11 or 12 wrote a letter to C.S. Lewis once. And uh, as many of you know, C.S. Lewis was the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, a series about chil a, of, seri of children's stories which had a, a hero, Christ himself, in the form of the lion named Aslan. The little boy wrote to Lewis and said, I love Aslan more than Jesus. <laughs> Lewis very wisely wrote back to the boy, no, all that you love in Aslan is Jesus. You know, we're constantly searching for these things and in postmodernism, it, it's caused us to lose the heart of the story. It's caused us to forget the story as it was told. And the story begins as a, a cosmic romance. The story begins in this beautiful tragedy. These two things, light and darkness, kept fighting because we as people chose to walk away from God and God in his love for his people continues to try to romance his people back to him. In the beginning, or once upon a time, right? All good stories start with that. Once upon a time in the land of Narnia, or once upon a time there was a kingdom called Camelot, we could say, or once upon a time there was a prince and a princess. All good stories have those kinds of patterns, right? And you find a protagonist, the good guy, the hero, and you find the antagonist, the the bad guy in the story. But seldom do you get a story as true and as clear and as tragic as the story that God writes with us. Once upon a time, or as it's written in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the problem is we can't start there. This is like the third act to us. This shows us how much we've lost of the bigger story. The story really starts with John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning. In other words, if we say once upon a time, before all time, there was a perfect love that existed outside of what we understand as time. The life that the Trinity shows us is true, real, powerful intimacy. A relationship, the kind that looks and, and fills all of the yearnings of our lives. This kind, this kind is different from the God of just creation. And, and we find sometimes that we, we think, I, I remember having this conversation with my father long before I went to seminary, but while in seminary, he said, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. 
I want to believe in the God of the New Testament. I said, Dad, they can't be separated. Jesus is with the Father, is with the Holy Spirit. They are in relationship. Three persons, one God. This beautiful relationship was told to us as a way of unfolding our hearts to be able to receive a love that is profoundly relational. Nothing will touch our hearts like a relationship. Either we thrill with it or we break it, right, in most relationships. It's kind of like if we're single, we think that the answer to our tragedy is our, our brokenness, our need for this sacred circle is marriage. If we just get married, then we'll have it. Married couples know that's not enough. If we just have kids, or if we just get into the right church, the right car, the right house, the right retirement plan. But if it's the wrong church, it must then be a, a good small group. And if it's the wrong small group, then it's a different small group. All our life, we're looking for that heroic, full, powerful Catch your breath away, intimacy. And that's where the act one begins. Oftentimes over this holidays, we'd visit with, with cousins and friends. We'd spend time uh, on holidays with uh, getting as many people into a house that you can cram in. In our own household, we at once, I think, had like 24 people all piled in the same house. And there's something different about that, something that we yearn for, something that captures our hearts because of the noise in the background of relationship. It's powerful. When I was a kid, I, I worked on farms in a little community in central Connecticut. And it, on those farms, you got to be friends with the families who owned these sheep and these horses and these cows. And in that process, you experienced life and death. Animals lived and died. Animals were taken for food. There was just this constant flow of life and death, happiness and struggle, toil, hard toil. I never worked so hard when I had to do the second cutting of hay one summer and you were stacking hay bales on this back of this truck, you know, to the heavens. As a child... Those things brought with them incredible memories. God has allowed us to be in a place where there's difficulty and trial and struggle. We recognize that in this first act, it's not as pretty as uh, we would like it to be. We, want, uh, we, we realize that there is a brokenness in the system, and that's probably act two of this sacred romance God gave us freedom and joy and power and strength, and we chose to want to consume it ourselves. And in that, we lost our freedom. Philip Yancey says, power can do everything but the most important thing. It cannot control love. The guards in a concentration camp possess ultimate power over us if we were there. They can make us kill other people. But there's only one thing they cannot force us to do. 
to love them. This is why God sees, seemed shy to use his power in the second act. In the third act, he enters the world in a way that tries to show us from the beginning what a tragic romance this is. Next slide. So here's the first king-size bed. God enters the scene in a way that, that proclaims and fulfills the Old Testament scripture in a way that says the hero isn't dead, the hero isn't lost. After 400 years of silence, he enters the scene as a child, vulnerable, innocent, sinless. Jesus enters the scene in a way that combats with the hand-wringing, the manipulation, the power surge that comes from Satan as he's fallen in books like Revelation and other places where he's described as the angelic who wants to be like God. It gets followed up by us, right? We decide that we want to eat and be disobedient from the Lord. And in this process, we get to this place where Christ enters in a world that needs an answer, and the answer is a child. God, in his gracious love, enters and says, I want to have a relationship with you. I don't want just lordship over you. I want lordship because you choose it. Because I give you the freedom to love. And I give you that freedom through a son that opens the world to forgiveness, transformation. We see the picture of a beautiful landscape. Or we see the picture of a, a, a breathtaking scene on the ocean. We see what it's like to experience the glory of God. And then... Somehow in our hearts, we hear that story again at Christmas time, and there were shepherds watching their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord came to them and said, Behold, there's a child. Next slide. Our picture of what this child might be lying in is a feeding trough. And this is our picture of a feeding trough. But the reality is that feeding trough is not what would Christ have been in, but he might have been in something more like this. Last slide. In first century Israel, the feeding troughs were stone. There wasn't really a lot of wood in the area. There were olive trees, but they produced a fruit that was necessary. And so there wasn't a lot to be said of trees that could be hacked down and cut up. And though we say that Joseph was a carpenter, much of his carpenter was probably more like a stonemason. And he took care of buildings and shaping things. But there wasn't a lot of ready-to-work wood to build a crash, as we understand it. But the story goes deeper than that. I discovered this just recently, that um, when I was uh, looking at what a... Um, manger really was, I discovered that there's a story that goes deeper. And it goes like this. Jesus 
was laid in a manger, but of course mangers were for feeding uh, in ancient times, and they were made of stone. They weren't made of what we see in the, the nativity scene. They weren't comfortable, but they were great for protection. That's why those who were experts in the matter, the priests, would put their newborn lambs in them for protection. But not just any lambs, the unblemished, perfect lambs that were used for the sacrifices for sins. Getting the picture? Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, was famous for their unblemished lambs used for the sacrifice. These lambs had to be perfect, so they would not so they would wrap them tightly in cloth and lie them in a manger to keep them safe. This was exactly why the only time mangers are mentioned in Jesus' birth story is be, being told to the shepherds. In Luke 2, it says, This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. The shepherds would have understood the powerful parallel. They knew what the cloth and the manger meant. This baby would be the perfect lamb of God, the Messiah who would sacrifice his love, his life and his love for the sins of the whole world. He wasn't just a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. He was God, perfect, sinless, holy, humbling himself to become the perfect sacrifice to reconcile us back to himself. You see, when we celebrate Christmas, as joyful as we want to be and as bubbly as we want to be, we don't escape darkness and death very easily. But we can stand in the midst of it and proclaim joy and peace and power and love because we know that we have a suffering Savior whose purpose right from the beginning was to be wrapped and be a message to the world that he would come and transform our lives. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. And all of these attributes that none of us can take on will be his vulnerable, tiny, yet to speak to us in the ways that we would understand what John was saying when he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Because it needed to unfold. We needed to understand the sacred romance of God. The way that he would come and chase after us again and again and again. So that when we hear the words of my favorite Christmas hymn, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift was given. How God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. God, in the form of man, came to die. From the beginning, he was a message that was deeper than the obvious. A message that simple shepherds and a virgin girl from, that was, was going to be uh, betrothed to a man but yet not married was going to have a child. And that would look terrible to the world around them. 
but it was a message from heaven. As we heard the words today um, that were spoken to us, we heard a, a story of hope, a story where every boot from a trampling warrior and the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood would be burned and as fuel for fire. We see the brokenness of the world and we see the wars that have struck out and we have to recognize that there's only one who can transform that brokenness in our world. And he's done it so that as we celebrate this Christmas, as we celebrate in the midst of brokenness and darkness and death, we speak life because his life was given so that we might have ours eternally. My prayer for you this Christmas is as you think about what you could bring, you could bring gold, you could bring a phone, you could bring hmm, you can bring the whole world to him. But it's really about the gift that he's given us. He's come to sacrifice everything so that he can express the Father's heart and so that he can move through the power of his spirit because you cannot separate those things. And as you celebrate, I pray that you see Christ in your relationships this Christmas. Through the new years that you celebrate with joy, that you get a chance to hear that holy rumble of laughter and good conversations or even crying in despair because it's all part of the picture as we care for one another because that's how the Lord is and he's invited us into that relationship. So as you celebrate Christmas, let that be a, a keyhole into the Lord's heart. Let that be a vision into you starting to understand how crazy he is about you how much he loves you, how much he can't wait to uncork eternity for you so that you might know the fullness of his love. Amen? Amen.